You're listening to the Startup Finance Podcast on the Startup Canada Podcast Network, a show entirely focused on helping you to build a financially fit and fundable business. On this show, we connect you with finance aficionados to impart their expertise to help your business grow. The Startup Finance Podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community and voice for Canada's 2.3 million entrepreneurs. Make your way over to startupcan.ca forward slash podcasts to subscribe to this Startup Finance Podcast through iTunes and Google Play Music. This podcast is presented in partnership with MasterCard, a technology company in the global payments industry. MasterCard's global payments processing network connects consumers, financial institutions, merchants, governments in more than 210 countries and territories. MasterCard products and solutions make everyday commerce activities such as shopping, traveling, running a business, and even managing your finances easier, more secure, and more efficient. I am your host, Dr. Sean Wise, Professor of Entrepreneurship at Ryerson University. I bring more than 19 years experience in seed investing, including five seasons spent supporting CBC's Dragon's Den. I've published dozens of articles for Profit, Inc., and even Canadian Business, as well as several best-selling books on venture capital, entrepreneurship, and pitching ideas. Want to connect with me after this podcast? Join me at 100stepstostartup.com. This is Alyssa Furtado, co-founder and CEO of RateHub. We're thrilled to have Alyssa Furtado on the show today. Alyssa is the co-founder and CEO of Toronto's RateHub, a Canadian mortgage comparison website that provides rate comparisons, tools, and accessible mortgage information to its users. Fed up with the hold the big six banks have on Canada's financial industry, Alyssa decided to start the disruptive fintech giant and has recently made waves by raising a $12 million Series A investment. On today's podcast, we'll talk to Alyssa about her big raise and what it takes to be a disruptor in the world of fintech. Welcome to the show. No, it's absolutely our pleasure. Now, we could talk about so much, and I gave a little hint of some of the things I want to talk about, but let me ask you, at the end of our podcast today, what learnings do you want our listeners to walk away with? I would love if our listeners walked away with really having a vision for their financial future and looking to save money and, and really taking ownership in that process. So what we've learned is that uh, it's really important for Canadians to get the best rates and to save money on financial products by really going out and understanding the options in the market, comparing different providers and selecting the one that's best for them. I think that would be great if we could come away with that. I'd yeah. be a happy, happy it's an host. Ambitious, ambitious Absolutely. Goal. So let me, um, let me start with a really basic place. You just, can you describe for me your journey with RateHub? You know, how you became a fintech disruptor, why you chose this unmet market uh, segment to, 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 to work with, why you found this, this problem in the industry, and, and more importantly, how this has changed the way banking and mortgages are done in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the year was around 2010, um, and I was doing some consulting previously in the U.S. in financial services, and we were really seeing that uh, consumers were starting a lot of their research and their journey to find the best products online. Um, And when I came back to Canada, I realized that Canada was a few years behind, but that same channel shift, the, the going online of consumers was happening in Canada as well. 
And at the same time, um, my co-founder, James, was working in a mortgage brokerage that was purchasing a lot of leads online. Um, and he was really seeing that as an effective way to acquire customers. Um, so really bringing those two things together, we saw that consumers were needing a, a place to go online and shop for financial products and that the providers were, were able to use online sites as a great way to connect with customers. So bringing those two things together, you know, it was really the consumer need and the business plan behind it. Now, I, I don't want to minimize what you've done because it in no way should be minimized, but it was done in other locations. And how did that, being able to see the model work in different countries or in different approaches, influence your decision to get started or to influence you to, to be able to get started, having seen other places where it worked? Yeah, that's a great question. So that absolutely helped us really see that, you know, one, not only could it be a working business, but it could be a big business. So in both the US and the UK and, and many other geographies, there's publicly traded companies like RateHub that do this uh, to help their citizens find the best deals. Yeah, I think mortgages and insurance generally have been very open to, to shifting away from how they've been done traditionally. So when you look at the fintech space, what do you identify as your key value proposition? So our key value proposition is helping Canadians save money. So all of the research shows that the more products you look at, the more providers you speak to, you'll get better deals on your financial products. You know, often there's a hidden cost to loyalty. And the more loyal you are to one financial institution, the worse sometimes the deals and offers are that you're that you're given. Um, and so we really see our value proposition as making that process of comparing and educating a lot easier for Canadians. And what do you think as a result of adoption of your product, which is going well, will have on Canadians and how Canadians shop for mortgages? Um, I think that it, it shows them that they there's better deals out there. They can save a lot of money. It shows them the the wide range of providers. So many people work with the big banks and, and we work with the big banks and they have a lot of really great products. But there's also other companies out there. Um, EQ Bank is a great example. They happen to have a really amazing high interest savings account rate. Um, and so, you know, you might not be as familiar or exposed to EQ Bank, but you come on our site and you learn about them and you find this really great product. Absolutely. Now, you've recently raised an impressive $12 million Series A investment. And, and, and we've heard throughout this podcast this season, people talking about Series A as being you know that large influx of capital after you found product market fit, after you have good channels, after you've proven your business model. Was that the case in, in your business? Did you have the evidence that you'd found product market fit before you were scaling? Are you raising this money to scale or is it for something else? Yeah, absolutely. So we're a bit of a unique case because we bootstrapped our company for the first seven years. Um, and it was in our eighth year. And just year for those people who aren't super keen and know what bootstrapping is, you mean you funded it through your own means, through sales, through projects, through your own funding. You didn't go external money. Exactly. We had, you know, um, our initial group of, you know, to the original people, three were operational in the business. Um, and we also, another great important source to look at is government grants, because there's a lot of really great programs out there to help startups get funding. Are you talking about IRAP and SHRED and some of the, the matching funds that provinces Ex and federal have? 
Exactly. So I think you named the two biggest. Um, and then there's a lot of um, other hiring grants, youth grants, COJG for training grants. Um, and we've really tried to take advantage of, of those sources as well. I think uh, smart founders do that because really it's, uh, it's, it's the government giving a down payment on the taxes they're going to take from you later when you become a billion dollar success. You should use it. <laughs> Exactly. I like I like that way of thinking about it. Um, I once wrote a column in the Globe about it, and uh, the commenters were less looked at gr- government grants for startups as less favorable than you just described them. <laughs> no, it's a down payment on future taxes. It, I get it. Exactly. Um, okay, so you had so, you had sort of a friends and family founders, you know, contributed, and then you got some grants. Take me, yeah, keep, and keep so going. and. Along the way, you know, it was very important to us that we ensured we were building a sustainable business. So we focused on revenue, we watched our expenses, and we built a profitable business. Um, And so we came to this inflection point where we said, you know, we've built this amazing business and we could absolutely go on as we are. But we feel like we're sitting on this amazing opportunity. And will we ever be bold enough? Will we ever invest and go all in enough unless we bring on external capital? And so uh, I remember my co-founder looking at me and saying, you know, there's two questions. There's, can we do this? You know, do we have the skill set and the raw grit and the desire? And will we actually do it? Um, and and we looked at each other and, and said, you know, I think that this external funding is, is the push that we need to really swing for the fences. I think people are still often living in the 20th century where they think that, you know, uh, an idea, let alone a business plan, is going to attract millions of dollars in venture capital. And I think that that over the last three generations of startups, the dot-com, the web 2.0, and our current age of unicorns, uh, I think the cost to launch has gone down and therefore mm-hmm. the need for millions has gone down. And so therefore the expectation is that by the time you come to ask for my check, your check is already in there. Your sweat and equity is already in there, but but your capital is in there. What role do you think Skin in the Game has when it comes to attracting outside capital? Skin in the Game being what money you have at stake. Yeah, I think that I think that certainly helps. I think probably even more important is demonstrated demonstrated traction and or past successes. Um, I think those become the most important. So what you've done with your money to date gives me more comfort in investing my money to date. Yeah, showing that, you know, you have built a viable business. You can show that customers want your service. You've grown revenues. Um, you've got a handle on your expenses. Um, you know, the, the expenses part in certain businesses isn't as important, but I think that that demonstrated traction is key. Now, I do think in in San Francisco, you see more examples of someone coming out with an incredible resume, past experiences in a business plan and being able to raise a few hundred thousand to a million at that stage. But that's a serial entrepreneur who has a track record. That isn't someone who's going to Dragon's Den the next day. Uh, somewhere in in between. I think that you can leave a top startup and say, you know, I was the I was very high up in Airbnb or I did this role within uh, Dropbox. And I, I think that y- you could raise more funding more easily in San Francisco. I don't think that same ecosystem exists in Canada. Um, probably on two fronts, both, you know, there we don't have as many of these unicorn startups that people have s- scaled up and can show to investors that they've lived through it and, and seen what it takes. Um, and there's just more capital in in the Valley. 
No, I think that makes sense. So what are you going to do with the $12 million? You're not going to roll around in it all as singles. So what's your use of funds? What's your use of proceeds? <laughs> yeah, we have two, so two, maybe three major things. So first and foremost, it was to really build out leadership talent and scale our organization. Um, and we knew that in order to scale past where we had grown, we really had to bring bring build out that leadership team and bring on experience and people who had had built and been at businesses much bigger than than Raid Hub was, but exactly where we needed to to be going. Um, it was also to uh, to help Canadians do more of the mortgage process online. We saw, you know, we're very deep in mortgages and saw a really great opportunity to, to help and improve the experience. And then thirdly, to launch into insurance. So today we we help Canadians save money on mortgages, credit cards, and banking products. And the next step for us was uh, to help with insurance. Now, there's lots of people trying to sort of fix insurance. Why do you want to build it instead of go out and buy a company like Zensurance? or another seed stage startup? Uh, it's, it's a good question. It's really expensive to buy startups. Um, we, we acquired a, a company several years ago, Can I Pay Less, that had built a great uh, credit card comparison application. Um, mm-hmm. But we were able to both come to to a deal on, you know, reasonable terms. Um, but I think so many startup founders have uh, such ambitious goals for valuation that it can be very hard to not, it, it just makes a lot of more, more sense often to build in-house. Now you've tapped into, uh, you know, a $12 million funding raise from a Boston based uh, VC. I think it's Elephant Partners LP. Uh, what's your experience working with non-Canadian investors? Is there a difference between sharks in the shark tank and dragons in the den? Do Canadian investors have a different risk tolerance, a different portfolio mindset? I have my own opinions, but I'd love to hear yours. So we, in in this round of funding, we met with both Canadian and U.S. partners. Um, Some of the differences that we saw, so in the U.S., there's definitely more players that are are giving bigger rounds and writing bigger checks. Um, So that was definitely one thing we noticed. And then secondly- Bigger rounds, bigger checks, yeah. Secondly, we we ended up raising um, in what's called growth equity and growth capital. And so in that market- um, they're looking for companies that have demonstrated revenues of a minimum of $5 million and they're operating close to break-even or profitable. And so that was a really good fit for us because they really gave us credit for the, the traction that we'd garnered and the de-risking of the business model. Um, and uh, the Canadian venture players were less familiar with that space and that model. Um, and then lastly... Uh, as I mentioned, there are publicly traded companies in both US UK, and our investors had a lot of really great experience in those markets. And we found in the Canadian market, people were less familiar with price comparison websites um, and marketplaces more generally. And so um, there was just a lot of a lot of comfort with with our business model and our business when we were speaking with US investors. I think that makes a lot of sense. So you, you've mentioned the business model. So can you describe how RateHub monetizes traffic? You know, what goes in the top and what comes out the bottom and, and how does that make a sustainable business? Yes, absolutely. So um, we earn for, uh, on the one end, advertising. So you can see banner ads on our site taken out by many of uh, the big financial institutions in Canada. But we also earn fees if we're able to connect financial service providers with customers. So um, if someone sees a great high interest savings account rate and actually opens an account with that institution, we can track all of that and uh, we earn what's called a referral fee. 
That's really interesting. So how do you then generate traffic at the top end? What, what, what tips can entrepreneurs take from what you've learned uh, getting so many people into the top of your funnel? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that is probably the hardest part. We found it probably easier to find um, partners and people willing to uh, pay us referral fees to connect with those consumers. The the challenge and the secret sauce is how do you get those consumers? Um, so, a number of sources, but because of that, what I described is that channel shift, people going online to start to look for their financial products. Um, we really did a good job of understanding what people are searching within Google and then figuring out how to get our site to the top of those searches. So sometimes that's through organic strategies, um, and sometimes that's through paid strategies. So paying to uh, to bid on the top keywords. Okay, I think that's important, and having the right balance between non-paid and paid can often Absolutely. be the the difference between profit and not. Absolutely. Now, this is the Startup Finance Podcast, so I have to ask about financial literacy and your own use. Before starting this business, what level of financial literacy would you say you had? And once you started the business, what did you do to upgrade if necessary? Great question. So, ooh, levels when I started, maybe 30 to 50%. Um, and and now, because um, I, I learned both within the business, so personal finance topics. And then I learned by working on the business a lot about income taxes and corporate taxes and um, so many different things like that. So it's really been an amazing experience to increase. Um, and it's either through speaking with experts. So, you know, my business partner has 10 years within the mortgage space. Um, so I learn a ton from him as an example, or maybe it's speaking to our business's accountant and learning about, um, tax structures and stuff like that from him. Um, and then a lot of it is just researching and learning online um, and educating myself on, you know, it could be something like RRSPs or RESPs, or it could be, uh, you know, specifically on credit cards. Absolutely. So a lot of young first-time founders don't use finances, financial solutions, financial literacy, uh, even data collection uh, on a proactive basis. They're mostly reactive. They wait to the end of the year. They go to see their account and they say, here's my shoebox. But businesses that do better, we've heard, use financial information as a strategy, as a way to keep on top of the business, as a way to decide where to allocate marketing dollars. So I wanted to ask, you've now running a business that's attracted large investments, you know, ready to scale. How do you use financial data? So I think one of the big transitions, you know, moving from reactive to proactive was bringing on dedicated resources in the finance department and budgeting and forecasting for the first time. And we we did it the first time in um, late 2016. So that was probably after about seven years or so in business. So it takes time. Um, but now seeing where we are in terms of sophistication from doing by department, going through all of our budgets and forecasting, getting financial data back, checking our budget to actuals, reforecasting, um, once you get to our scale, it would be irresponsible to do anything but, and, you know, cause you're, you're running large, you have a, a huge payroll and you're trying to figure out how to manage all of your expenses. And so you have to get a lot more disciplined. I think that's important. Let's keep on that topic. They say that business is a reflection of how its owners take care of themselves. So how has managing your personal finance trickled its way into sort of how rate hubs finances are managed? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I think that, 
on the personal side, I have, there's lots of things that I spend a lot of time thinking about and care about and getting right. So, you know, around RSP season, I really want to make sure I'm thinking about how much goes in there and, and actively deciding. Um, but then it's, it's also, uh, what I've really learned on the business side is until you, you know, bring on an expert and give them enough time and dedicate the resource to thinking about it, um, it won't be done properly. So on the business side, we're a lot better than that. We brought on in 2016, our director of finance and operations, Jen Pollock, um, who's phenomenal. I probably need to take that advice back to my personal life um, and, you know, work with a financial advisor or an expert to, to make sure I'm making the right decisions. And I think that's important. What do you think most first time founders get wrong when it comes to raising capital? I think one of the things uh, that first-time founders can get wrong is feeling the pressure to grow, scale, and spend before they've really found that product market fit or that acquisition fit. Um, and so I've seen a lot of people, you know, oh, I've gone out and I've made these promises to investors that we're going to scale at a certain rate. And so I'm just going to throw money at all of these different types of advertising before, you know, defining how can we test with small amounts, learn, make sure we see traction, make sure we're onboarding the right type of customers and then scale that up. Um, you know, I'd rather if I were an investor, see a, see a founder more conservative at first with the finances till they really understood what they were spending on and then scale from there. I think that's interesting because uh, I remember a startup genome report a few years ago that said the largest killer of startups is premature scaling, which is exactly yeah. what you're talking about, where you, you hire an entire sales force before your product's finished. Or you, you go into another country before you've proven you can make your first location profitable. Yes. And I'm, I'm empathetic because I can see how and why it happens. Um, you know, the board saying, we just put this money in, we need to see you know, exponential growth rates year over year over year. Um, but going, going all in before you've got the right data and understanding can be detrimental. Absolutely. I, I think everyone would agree that the, the cost to launch, the cost to test, the cost to have a minimum viable product have been dropping steadily. You know, Absolutely. what used to take $5 million in 97 maybe took $500,000 in 2007. But by 2017, it took, you know, my nephew $50 in a Shopify account. So yes. that has let a lot of people bootstrap into entrepreneurship, meaning you don't need someone else's permission to get started. Is there a downside of having so many people trying to start startups? Not one that I can think of. I definitely, I think you're, you've hit the nail on the head. That was, you know, an absolute absolutely the costs have been going down and it actually impacted the venture world a lot because um, the venture world, you know, used to writing big checks and needing big checks and big returns for their uh, investments to be viable. So what we saw was with people needing a lot less, the initial seed rounds were going a lot more to angel investors and people that could write small checks more quickly. So things had, had definitely been changing, but I don't think there is anything wrong with that. Um, you know, I think that the more people that are, as long as they're being responsible about it and making sure that, you know, they can afford to make the investment and take the chance and they have fallback opportunities if their businesses don't go well, um, I think it's amazing. It empowers more people to, to get started. I definitely think your, your point is, is incredibly valid. I've been a seed investor from the beginning and it used to be a $5 million check we'd write. Two years later, we'd find out maybe putting shoes on cats wasn't a good idea. Where today, you can test that idea with $50, a Shopify account and some Google AdWords. Right, 
Right. And it's, and it, it's hard. I'm definitely big on test and learn. And, and we've done some projects internally where we've been able to get tests into market really quickly and validate assumptions. But sometimes you do have to go more, not necessarily all in, but more in to see if something's an opportunity. So um, sometimes I, I think we can simplify things too much by just saying, oh, we can just, you know, toss up a landing page and run a Google AdWords AdWords account. It's not always that easy. It's hard to know how far and how deep we need to jump in to, to see. Oh, I think that's very valid. And I think some people have different levels of comfort that they're good with, but certain businesses aren't appropriate for what we're describing, the lean startup methodology. I wouldn't want to do a lean startup based right. on a cancer cure. You know, you're not, you're, you're, there's certain things cost, there's infrastructure, there's materials, but, but I, I think there are a lot of learnings here. So what are your three biggest learnings as a fintech disruptor, as someone who is changing the status quo? So for me, I think the three biggest learnings have been at the beginning, it's incredibly important to focus. So I remember, um, sitting down with an advisor and they were throwing, you know, all the, are you doing email marketing? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? And you have to be doing all of these things. And I walked out of the meeting so overwhelmed. And as I reflected on it, I said, I actually think that's the wrong answer. You know, we have two people working for us full time right now. We need to decide what is the most important thing and be the best at it. Um, And so I think that focus is incredibly important. And it's actually a skill because entrepreneurs are almost programmed to start pumping endorphins around opportunities and get so excited and see that anything's possible. And so it takes a lot of discipline to be able to push things out of your mind to focus on the things that matter most. The second thing would be that sometimes, so, you know, it's an incredibly amazing journey, but there are a lot of really stressful times. And when you're living through those stressful times, sometimes, you know, after in your eighth year, it feels like you're not making any progress. You know, how am I still stressed out or how is this still so hard? Um, And my business partner and co-founder always reminds me, you know, it's important to realize, are you stressing about the same things this year as you were last? And when he framed it like that, uh, I actually realized how much progress we make every single year because, you know, two years ago, a lawsuit that had me totally stressed and up at night, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have flinched as much if that happened this year. And I was stressing about totally new things like how do I find talent that's scaled to, you know, a company to 50 million and thinking about just entirely different things. And that really helped me see, wow, I'm stressed because we're growing so fast that there's brand new challenges being thrown at me every single year. Um, And I think the third thing is that, you know, to build a successful company for most people, it's going to be a very long journey. You know, we have all heard there's no such thing as an overnight success. And so it's important to make it, you know, a somewhat sustainable and fun journey along the way, because like me, you can look up and you've just finished eight years of your life. Um, And if I dropped all of my friends or didn't invest in my husband or missed out on amazing time with my son, it, you know, 10, 15 years later, it, it wouldn't have been worth it. Well, let's focus on that last point for a minute here. Uh, Bruce Croxon, the dragon in the den and an entrepreneurial success, you know, he once told me that entrepreneurial life balance is you run like hell for 10 years to make a billion dollars and then you relax for the next 10 years to spend it. But it sounds to me like you have a much healthier view of, of work-life balance. How do you make that all work? Ooh, how do I try to make it all work? I think, I think it ebbs and flows, you know, 
it's it's defining what things are most important to you and what things are going to drive happiness and then being true to those things in your decision making um and so you know a great example and it might seem small is just really figuring out right now, you know, there's so many opportunities for tech events and getting out of the community and seeing people. And I love that. But those, sometimes I will say yes, when I get an email and when I'm there faced with, you know, attending the event that night, I realize that all I want to do is go home and put my son to bed. And so really getting smarter about how your decisions play back to the things that are most important to you. And I think it's, you know, balance is, is never going to look the same week to week. So sometimes I'll have a week where I need, I need to be out two nights and, and miss bedtime. And that means the next week I really need to make sure that I'm, I'm home. So, um, not being too hard on yourself in the moment, if there's a, a week that I haven't seen my son as much, making sure I know that, you know, the weekend's coming up, I can dedicate it fully to being with him and and know that the next week I want to take things easier in the evenings. I think that's great advice. We're, we're talking today with uh, Alyssa Furtado, co-founder and CEO of RateHub. We have a very limited time, so I, I want to be as hyper-focused as possible. Um, what about this notion of female entrepreneurs not getting as much capital as male? We know statistically it's true. What do you attribute that to? And more importantly, how could we fix it? It's a really great question. Um, and I, I almost wonder if a uh, venture capitalists are the best people to talk to because um, I am female, but we, we were successful in raising funding. So um, it's a harder one for me to to answer. Um, some of the things that I've heard is, you know, in other conversations as this come up is investors are always looking for patterns. So, you know, you can see sometimes you're pitching an investor and they're like, oh, I know, you know, this reminds me exactly of seeing Snapchat when it was pitched and it looked like this and the growth pattern looked like this and the acquisition strategy looked like this. And so, you know, uh, if historically more males have been getting funding and scaling companies, that also becomes a pattern that investors see. Um, and so some of it, I think, is you know, venture capitalists and investors being really aware of any natural biases they may have, or if the way that females present their companies it looks different or sounds different than the way males do, really making sure that they're conscious and aware of that. Um, but I've seen, you know, I, uh, I've seen a lot more females receiving funding and being successful, uh, seeing dedicated funds like the one through BDC, specifically targeting female investors. Um, and so I think that the more that happens, then we'll see uh, companies with female founders raise money, have successful exits, and that will encourage more of that to happen into the future. Well, I think inclusion and diversity only increase the value of our innovation workforce. So I look forward to that day. I want to thank you for spending some time with us today. I know you've got $12 million to go spend, but but uh, I very much enjoyed learning from the lessons that you've shared. And I very much appreciate you telling us the story of Rate Hub. Fabulous. Well, thanks so much for having me. And I hope we'll talk again soon. Thank you for joining us this week on the Startup Finance Podcast, a show dedicated to providing entrepreneurs with advice and experiences on startup finance. Want to access more resources and support to grow your business? Visit startupcan.ca to gain access to support, resources, and events. And be sure while you're there to check out all the other original Startup Canada podcast series on the Startup Canada Podcast Network.